But this is what I jot down, anyway. I'm not here to tell you about the group of the teams of the dedicated people that I worked with for the last six years. Every week, no fail, they're all here. To serve the Lord with everything that they have and everything they, they can offer and everything that they make themselves available for God to work through with them. So here's a little thing that I jot down um, sometime this week. I just want to share with you because otherwise I'm just going to be all over the place. <laughs> um, in Psalm 95, in verses 1 and 2, it said, Come, let us sing joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and songs. And that's what all of us here do in our worship ministries. Little changes over the last years. Um, we, we sort of trying to find out what exactly are we talking about in worship. It's not that's 24-7. This, this is the thing that we all know that we have to do. This is a teaching from the Bible that asks us to do, worshiping our Lord 24-7. But what I'm talking about is the worshiping God for who he is and what he has done for us and can be expressed in many different forms in diverse environments. I mean, we have multiple congregations here, we have multiple teams and multiple languages. Um, we all come here on a Sunday as a corporate worship for one reason, and that's to glorify our God. So it's not the environment, it's not who we are and what we are, what we can bring is what God is working through us. But it's also it's the heart behind the action that matter to God. And, and throughout the scripture, we see how God's people have worshipped him on towering mountaintops and inside homes with dirt floors and, and lavishly adorned solar temples and sometimes in dark prisons. But they demonstrate their devotion to God with singing, dancing maybe, <laughs> sacrifices in public and private prayers. But what's most important to God is not the way we choose to worship him, <clears throat> but the motivation that directs us and our actions. When God calls us to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength in his demanding that we hold nothing back from him, a commitment, a worshiping God is a vow to be bold and unashamed of our love and devotion to him. So my reason this morning is <clears throat> in this start of new 2015, this new beginning, this new year, I'm going to challenge all of you to worship our God the way that he has made and intend for you too. And if God has stirred in your heart to join the worship team, um, this is the time to respond and to discover how he's going to transform your life through your serving. But most of all, allowing him to shape and challenge you in the way that he has intended for you. If you play an instrument, you can sing in tune, handy with computers, or have good ears for sound, you know, PA this and all of that stuff. Um, please come and have a chat after the service. I'll hang around here, down here. Or fill it in a yellow card and we'll contact you over the next week or two. So thank you for your time. God bless you. Julian is going to share the passage with us this morning. Hello, good morning. I'm going to bring this morning's Bible reading, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. This is the word of the Lord. It's good that we can be together to, to worship the Lord. What we know the things we're going to be doing today is we're going to be, right now we're going to have a special time of prayer and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be reading out some prayer points for Lloyd Nicholas and their family and uh, some of the, are up, the first few points are up there on the screen. These were prayer points that were prepared by Peter McCullough uh, yesterday last night about 8 o'clock and he sent these to me and we agreed that it would be appropriate to pray to bring you up to date what's been happening with Lloyd and Shalotta particularly Lloyd's health, and also to pray for them. So Lloyd's been unwell since early December. He was admitted to hospital New Year's Day with vomiting and unable to eat. They discovered there is a mass pressing on his stomach from his pancreas. The tests have revealed a lymphoma, but they are unsure of what type. Potential operation on Monday to try to bypass the tumour. They're looking at chemotherapy treatment, possibly. There are lots of hurdles ahead for them. Shalotta and family, that's Steve and Vanessa and Daniel, are holding up well, but they certainly appreciate our prayers. Shalotta's visa needs to be extended to permanent residency and pray that this will happen quickly. And so the last point, your prayers will be appreciated. So right now, I'm going to ask uh, David Butterfield and uh, Don Marriott are going to come up. They're going to lead us in prayer to start with. And we're going to pray for Lloyd and Shalotta and the family. And Michael's got a... Thank you, Michael. And uh, we'll pray for them, and I'll finish off the time of prayer. Might just get us to stand as we pray together. That's on. I had the privilege of visiting Lloyd in hospital on Thursday afternoon, and uh, we just took just a brief visit, and. Uh, but Lloyd, I'll make you aware, for those who aren't aware of it, is a long-term member of our church. He, he's been a member, I believe, for around about 43 years. And, and, and uh, during most of that time, he's been away uh, pro proclaiming the gospel to many parts of the world. And uh, Lloyd, is, uh, I, I read the parable of the talents during the week, and uh, uh, he was like that person that... He was given a little and he made good use of it and the Lord gave him more and the Lord was said to him, uh, well done, you good and faithful servant. So he's been a faithful servant of the Lord over many years and he now has a special, special need there in terms of his health and we need to uh, come and bring those needs to him and our urge would be that each one of you would continue to pray for him individually. Dear Father, we just come to you at this time and we just thank you for Lloyd. We thank you for his faithful service uh, uh, in, in the proclamation of the gospel over many, many years, dear Father. And we just pray that at this time, when he has real health needs, that you will be very close to him 
that you will guide the doctors in terms of what they decide is, is appropriate treatment and that you will bring healing to him. We just commit him to you. Uh, he, he's, he's in real need and we know uh, your power and your, uh, the fact that when we pray that you will answer our prayers and we just commit him into your hands. We'd also commit Charlotta and Vanessa and Daniel and Stephen also as well, dear Father, and pray that you'll minister to them, you'll keep them close to you, and that uh, you will give them a real strong sense of peace and of your presence. We just commit Lloyd into your hands at this time. May he be sustained. May he know your peace. May his faith be sustained, and you'll keep him very close to you, we pray, and that you bring the appropriate healing to him. We just commit him into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, I just add uh, my prayer to the prayers of many, Lord, and I'm sure that there are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of people all over the world uh, who are lifting Lloyd up, those who have been impacted by his ministry and his family. And Father, we're just here this morning as uh, his church family, and we want to lift him up before your throne of grace, that he may find grace and know your mercy, and Father, to know your comfort, and Father, to know your wonderful healing touch upon his body. And we do pray, Lord, that you might be pleased to speak your healing words into his body, Father, and, and to touch him too and, and he's deep in a man. And uh, Lord, may he just know the peace. And we thank you that we have heard that, Lord, he does have that sense of peace, Father, from you, because he knows the Prince of Peace. And we bless you for that. And so we commit him into your loving hands, praying again, Lord, uh, that uh, you will minister through the doctors, the medical teams that are looking after him. And Father, that your watchful eye and your guiding hand would be upon these teams of medical people. But Lord, indeed, that you be the one who would speak your healing upon him and raise him up, we pray. Lord, we also commit Charlotta to you and we pray for her that your comfort and your strength and again your sustaining grace will be her portion day in and day out, along with all the family. And Father, it's our prayer too that Charlotta will know your guiding hand and your giving favour to the authorities that need to happen for her to gain permanent residency. All those things that are needed, Lord, we thank you that we can raise these up before you in prayer. So loving Father, we just uh, thank you this morning that we can lift this brother up and pray that you will touch his life and minister to him. We bring him before you. Lord, your word tells us too that when one member of the body suffers, we all do. And so we do just want to, uh, Lord, lay this burden before you as we lift him before you now, thanking you, Father, in anticipation of your gracious hand upon him, Charlotta, and the whole family, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Please be seated. I, I, will, I will pray for him, pray for me again when we close the, after I've preached my sermon uh, this morning, so, but it's... We need just to continue to be in prayer. I'll make sure that those prayer points are sent out through the, the channels there in our prayer and praise notes the, uh, tomorrow. They'll come out to you. So those of you who are on that, the over 100 people now in our church who pray regularly. Uh, and uh, if you want a copy of those uh, prayer points, please see me and I can make sure they'll email to you. Yeah. Well, it's where the, 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 the title of my sermon this morning is Making a Fresh Start. We, like, we make lots of fresh starts, don't we? Almost every day it's a, it's a fresh start, isn't it? But uh, 
This morning I'm going to be talking about uh, another Bible character. Last Sunday night I spoke about a Bible character called Matthew, one of the apostles, and this morning I'm going to talk about another Bible character. But one of the things is that the question I'd like to ask you in my introduction, what, uh, what, you know, what makes a, a perfect family? What do you think makes a perfect family? Well, I put up a few suggestions there. You know, you know good parents. We all think that, you know, most of us would say we're good or we have some wonder, we may wonder about it at that time. Or perfect kids. Well, most of your kids here are perfect, aren't you? And uh, plenty of money, we think maybe, or everybody cooperating with each other and there's no conflict and no drama and no sibling, uh, sibling rivalry. I think as school holidays go on, we... Uh, Mums uh, get a bit sort of frayed around the edges. We're, you know, glad that school goes back, you know. Uh, but, you know, families, we're all part of families. And uh, one of the things is that some of us uh, uh, come in different order. Some of us uh, might be uh, the, uh, the head of the family, you know, the eldest in the family. Some of us are the, if you're the eldest in the family, aren't you always told to, I'm not the eldest in the family, so I can't say that for me, but uh, I'm, I'm the second eldest of nine, so I'm probably up the top, you know, one of the older members of the family, but setting an example for younger brothers and sisters and all that sort of thing. And if once you get to school, if you're one of the younger brothers or sisters, you know, you've got a, if you've got a brother or sister that's either good or something or really bad at something, you get compared with them, don't you? So, you know, but how would, you, would it be like to grow up in a family where you're the oldest brother in the family always did the right thing he was and of course we're going to be talking about the family of Jesus what would it be like to have Jesus as your oldest the oldest brother in your family I don't know though I think it would create some stress because there was a brother called James there was a brother called Joseph there was a brother called Simon and there was another called Judas often referred to as Jude and then he also had some sisters so that's the family, five boys and at least two sisters. We're not quite sure how many. And of course, then there were, you know, so there's the four brothers and Jesus in that family. So how, would you, how, would you, how do you cope if the oldest member of your family was always doing the right thing? Because we know the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus never, ever sinned. So how would, how would you or I cope in, in growing up in a family with Jesus as your older, the oldest brother in your family? I think that would create some stress if it was me because I know I'm, not in, I'm imperfect. I can think back of some, and if I, I don't go telling stories about things I did as a child, but my, I've got a brother who's in, my, in the family I come from. There's nine of us, and one, the next young brother who's younger than me is just nearly four years younger than me. And he keeps reminding me when we meet, when we chat together and have family gets together about the way in which I used to set him up. <laughs> I would have the ideas of all the mischief to get up to and I'd encourage him to do it. And of course, when he got caught, I could say, he did it. And so I, that he reminds me even now, and I'm, ne I'm, I'm nearly 70 years of old uh, and he's uh, you know, four years younger than me, he still reminds me of this. And so that's what we're like, you know, in families, there's this sense of, of community, but there's this sense sometimes of, of rivalry, and there's a sense of competition sometimes amongst brothers. And so I'm going to look at a, a selection of, of biblical references. We're going to be really talking about the, the next, the brother James is the, bro, the, boy, the first one we're going to be talking about today. And so we're going to look at a, a selection of biblical references about Jesus' family. 
And the first one is in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53 to 57. It says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there and coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? And then it goes on. Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? And so here, you know, when Jesus starts to, to his ministry, he's identified very clearly as part of this family, as part of this group of people, as growing up in this hometown of Nazareth. He was recognised in this way and, and identified in this way. And uh, I'm sure that the brothers, as they were growing up in that family, they did not understand that there was a tension because Jesus was a person. He was a man. He was an actual person, flesh and blood person. But also, he was the son of God. Now, Theologians have tried to discuss and talk about this and about the, the divinity versus the humanity of Christ and there's all sorts of discussion about this. But uh, the whole thing is these, this, these boys would, and these sisters would have grown up in the family coping with this firsthand. I cannot imagine what it was like. I try to imagine and put myself in, the, in this situation and think a few things about it, but I really don't know what it's like. But you see, if we go to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46, it says, you know, and there's, there's also this, this tension between his family, his responsibility of his family and his responsibility as the, as the one who was ministering as the son of God. And it says, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to, the, they, they, he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does my will, the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. And so he's talking in terms of this spiritual dimension of being the son of God and the relationship he had with people versus his family relationships. And so there was this, this tense sense of conflict. And so he, there was, and, and there, as he's mentioned this here, he's, he's sort of drawing a distinction between the two. And of course, the brothers as I said, suggested to you, probably struggled with this. And if we go over to a similar passage to the one with Matthew, the one in Mark in chapter 6, it talks about here, and Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples and goes on and says, and, uh, and it goes on, isn't this the carpenter? So Jesus is recognised as the carpenter. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judah? And Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And so they, these people were offended by the fact of, of the way that Jesus was, was involved in ministry. And it seems to me that possibly the struggle that, these, that his brothers would have had is, how, you know, this fellow is, is our brother, but he's also there's something else and there's another aspect to it that, that probably they didn't understand and it seems as though they, they, they were offended and other people were offended of, of the fact that, of the way he behaved himself and the way he conducted himself. And James particularly, I'd like to suggest to you, had no appreciation of the, the ministry and, and the mission of Jesus. 
In fact, he was an unbeliever, in my opinion, and he acted like an unbeliever. If you're not a Christian and you don't have, you're not spiritually attuned, it tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. So here it seems as though James, as he's growing up, he's looking at things from a, a natural perspective. He's looking at things just from a normal family. He did not, not fully understand at this stage who Jesus was. He didn't understand that he was the son of God and, and he was on a mission and he was, came here on a mission and he was gathering his disciples together and he was out in ministry and serving God and he didn't recognise and appreciate who he was. And so if you go over to uh, John chapter 7, when that they're about to go up to Jerusalem. And so his brothers come up with a suggestion. Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And so it's making it very clear in this passage they were trying to say, geez, why don't you go up and make, you know, make a big name for yourself up there in Jerusalem? They, it seems as though they were on one sort of wavelength and the Lord Jesus was operating on a different wavelength. It seems that they were operating on the, from a natural point of view as brothers. The Lord Jesus was, had a, a mission involved. He was acting on a, on a different dimension, on a spiritual plane. And so as, as, uh, as they saw what was going on, they said, Jesus, go and make a big name for yourself. And the Lord Jesus said, no, he didn't. But in this passage, it makes it very clear that these people did not, his brothers did not believe in him, particularly James. So, and as time went on, and as Jesus became involved in his ministry, and then the Lord Jesus was taken and was nailed to the cross. And I'd like to suggest, and then the Lord Jesus was taken from the cross and he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And it's after the resurrection, I believe, that James would have been converted. Yeah, right when Jesus was on the cross and he looked at, he, he asked for somebody to look after Mary for him. It wasn't any of his biological brothers. He, in fact, he asked the apostle John to do that, to take care for Mary. But what we do find is that when we go to the book of Acts, we find that after the Lord Jesus had returned to heaven, he had ascended back to heaven and, and given the promise that he, the angels said, you know, while you, you stand here gazing up into heaven, the Lord Jesus, the same one, is going to come uh, back down from heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk for the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room and it gives you the name of the list of the apostles that were there. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. And so James and Co. were there with Mary, praying. Something has happened. 
Something significantly has changed the way that these brothers were acting. We read in John chapter 7, they didn't believe in the Lord. They weren't following, they didn't understand what he was on about. They didn't understand his, his, his perspective on things. But here we find that they are there praying with Mary and the other apostles. They're there praying as they, as the, as they waited. And, as, and, and we get into Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit came and, and so on and we go through the book of Acts and we see all of the things that God did and the way that God was at work and the way in which the church grew. But what we do know is, as we go to the 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which, where it comes to the, where, where Paul is making mention of the people that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7 it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of me, he appeared to me also to one as abnormally born. That's the apostle Paul. So here, what we know is, when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, he went and personally spoke to James. We don't know what the conversation was about. We don't know what was said. We don't know what happened. We don't know how long he met with him. All we know is that he appeared and he spoke with James. James knew that the brother that he was sort of looking at from a natural point was more than just an ordinary man, that he was the son of God, that he was raised back to life again. And as we go on, we're going to see how that James' life was transformed. We're not given any, we don't know the details of it, but he became a significant church leader. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that James did and, and his ministry and some of the things he was involved in as we go through the book of Acts and look at other parts of the New Testament. We'll see how that James became a significant church. God had met him. The Lord Jesus had met him personally and spoken to him and ministered to him. I'm sure that many of us may not have had a physical encounter with the Lord Jesus but we've had a spiritual encounter with the Lord, haven't we? We've met with the Lord Jesus. We know what it is to have a personal relationship with him. Many of you here can testify to the fact of the way that God has been at work in your life over many years. And so that's what, what James was, was one of those people. We find that he was recognised as a church leader. Became a significant church leader and, was, and particularly when the apostle Paul was converted and Paul you know, comes back into, comes into to visit Jerusalem. He was really there, he, right at that time, he was a, a respected leader and respected by the apostolic church at the time. He was one, a man who had spiritual discernment, a man who had wisdom and spirituality, and we see, which is very different to what we see about him in the, in the, in the, in the Gospels. If we go to Galatians chapter 1, it said, after three years, this is Paul's telling his story, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And so Paul shares how that he spent some time and it shows how that, that James was recognised as a significant leader. And when you go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, it talks about and I'll read verse six from verse 6, Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. 
As for those that seem to be put whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. Then men, these men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. So that's Paul's talking about his ministry. For God was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews and was also at work in my ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. Then it goes on in the next verse. James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace of God given to me. So here, James was there alongside part of this apostolic group. He was regarded as a, a pillar in the church, a significant person there ministering and holding and keeping the church going and keeping it together. It seems as though this was the, this was the way that, that God had been at work. The great change, how it came all about and all the people that ministered to him, we have no idea. But certainly James was recognised as, as a significant leader there in the first century, alongside Peter and equal with Peter. And you go on to, into, into Acts chapter 12, when, when Peter was released from jail, he said, tell James and my brothers about this. So obviously he was highly revered and highly regarded by Peter in the church there itself. A little while later, as we go through, and we're just sort of going through slowly and looking at some of the things that are said about James, in, when you come to Acts chapter 15, the church had a, a real issue to work out and they had, a, they had a problem to solve. And they came together to discuss this. It was about the relationship between the, the Christians, were the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and how they should be fitting into the church and how they were regarded. And they were discussing and they were debating about it and trying to work it all out. How much of the law should the, 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 the Gentile uh, Christians being enforced to keep and so on. And it, it says in Acts chapter 15 and verses 12 to 18, we get James summed up what was happening. He, he summed up their discussions and he, he speaks up. And in Acts chapter 15 and verse 19, he says, it's my judgment therefore. And he gives some suggestions of how they can, they can work through this problem. And so here was this, here he is, he's acting as a significant leader in the church, in sorting out problems. He's a man that was being given wisdom and discernment and ability to work through things and process stuff and, and problem-solve things. And so here he is. God is at work and God is using him. He continued also as a leader in the church as you go through to Acts chapter 21 when Paul had been around on his journey and he was coming back to, to when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brother received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went up to see James and all the elders were present. And so here he is, he, he's continuing on in this, this ministry of, of serving God and, and being used by God. And then we go to the New Testament, further on in the New Testament, we find that James also was a person that wrote one of the New Testament books. He became a New Testament writer. And when he writes and he introduces himself as a writer of the, one of the, of the New Testament book of James, he talks about himself as a servant, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't big note himself. He doesn't make an issue about his connections with the Lord's family. One of the things is you will find that as he, as he speaks, he, he, he alludes to the, the teachings of Jesus and he, he makes uh, reference to, 
to the, 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 a lot of the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. He's a, as you go through the book of James, he's a very practical person, a, a you know, hands-on sort of person who wasn't just a, you know, full of knowledge in his head, but he was a very practical person. And, and the book that he's written for us, that we, as we read the New Testament, we find that he gives us some, some really great information. But one of the things is he starts off in the book of, about being persecuted and, and going through trials when he finishes off his book, I mean, that's one of the a significant things. Often the very, the very first few words that come in a, a book and the last few words are significant. And it seems to me that James was a person who had a, a real... And he saw the importance of restoring people who had wandered off the, tr- off the track. Because he had wandered off the track himself, during, well, even though he had grown up with the, with the Lord Jesus. Even though he'd grown up in the same family of Jesus. He knew what it was like to wander off the track. And, and James chapter 5 and verse 19, he says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And so it seems to me that he was a person that, would, that was called by God. The Lord had called him, the Lord had changed his life. He'd had this personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. He'd made a fresh start when he, as he, when he met the Lord Jesus. And the question I'd ask for you this morning, as a believer, have you made a fresh start for 2015? Are you asking the Lord, where do you want me to be involved in ministry? Or maybe you've never even made that point. Maybe you've never, ever come to know the Lord. Maybe you don't, you've been around the church and around Christians and around, around the things of God, but you've never made a personal commitment to the Lord yourself. So maybe today is the time when you need to make your fresh start to come to know the Lord and to be transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit. But those of us who do know him, maybe we can make a fresh start this morning. And say, Lord, I'm going to resolve to serve you more faithfully from this day on. He served the Lord faithfully where his leadership skills were certainly identified and recognised by his peers. As I mentioned, he emphasised the teachings of Jesus. He started poorly, but he finished well and lived out what he taught to others. Isn't that what we want to do? Like the Apostle Paul could say that he's... He's fought the good fight and henceforth has laid up for him a crown of righteousness for him and not only for him, but for all those who love his appearing. doesn't matter whether you've made some blunders along the way. doesn't matter if you've lost it along the way and you've lost your way. Maybe today is a time to come back and ask the Lord to help you to live and to walk faithfully with him for the rest of your life. And tradition tells us that James, he died as a martyr in about 61 AD, he, he lived out his faith and he died for his faith, as many of the, those of the apostolic group did. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but he's certainly part of that group of people. And so this morning, I've just given you a quick res- run through of, a, of some of the things about James and his life and some of the things that he's experienced. And I trust it can be encouraged each of us to live and to serve the Lord faithfully in 2015 or as long as the Lord might give us because we don't know the the Lord might come before the end of this year we have no idea when that may be but we need to be walking closely with him and seeking to serve him faithfully let's pray together Lord we want to thank you that you're a God who knows and understands everything that's been going on in our lives 
you know, everything, all the experiences we've had. And we, we particularly, again, pray for the Nicholas family, that you might continue to meet every need that they have. Pray that, that you might give wisdom and discernment to the doctors as they're treating Lloyd. And pray for Charlotta and their children, that they might be upheld by you and that they might know your hand upon their lives. We pray also again for that provision of that permanent residency for Charlotta, that that might come through soon. And we ask that you might just continue to sustain them and support them. We pray that right now, that as Lord's in hospital, that he might be conscious of your presence and your nearness and you upholding him. And we pray, Lord, for each of us as we go our separate ways today, that we might learn to, to walk closely with you and to live and live for you and to serve you. And that this might be, today might be a fresh start for each of us to live for you so that we might glorify you in the way that we live and the way that we serve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.